Isaiah chapter 65, starting at verse 17. The Lord speaks through the prophet Isaiah. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the morning service over the course of the summer, we've been walking through the articles of the Apostles' Creed all the way from God the Father Almighty to this morning's confession that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And as we've been going through this series, we've been playing off the themes of the morning service in the evening service. You've probably noticed that. Uh, in the morning, the, and the idea behind this was that when we preach on the catechism, as we've been doing throughout the morning service, we preach topically on a particular point of doctrine, walking our way through the whole council of scripture as it's focused and interpreted through the Heidelberg Catechism, which we believe to be a faithful and trustworthy summary of what the scriptures teach us. And so in the morning services, we've been preaching about the doctrines of the Christian faith as presented in the Apostles' Creed. And in the evenings, we've taken the opportunity to dive a little bit deeper into a particular biblical text or a Bible story that reinforces or elaborates on the doctrine from the morning service. This week, though, we decided to split up the Lord's Day, the Lord's Day 22, this final question and answer about the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And that way, Pastor Carl could focus on the resurrection of the body this morning, and then this evening, I would preach on the life everlasting. And I feel like that wasn't very fair, because this is a much harder thing to preach on than the resurrection of the body, because Hebrew and Greek both have words for resurrection, but they don't have words for everlasting which is an interesting thing. 
They don't have words for eternal or everlasting or forever in Hebrew or Greek. These are foreign words to these languages, even though the ideas are still there. And so when the Greek and Hebrew writers of scripture want to say that something is forever or that something is eternal or that something is everlasting, they use this little term, age, for an age, like, like a span of time. And so in the Greek, it's ion, and in the Hebrew, it's olam, and that means age, like a period of time. And so when the Hebrew writers of scripture want to say that something lasts forever and ever, they write olam ha'olam, which means an age and an age. Two ages together. That's like more, than any, more time than anybody could conceivably imagine. So that was their idea of forever, an age and an age. And in the Greek, they write ion ionion, which is a cool thing to say, ion ionion, which means the ages of ages, sort of like king of kings and lord of lords. It's a hyperbole that, that this is the, the biggest age, the greatest age, the ages of ages. It's their way, using the, the limitations of their language, to express a reality that lies beyond their experience and really beyond their comprehension. Even our English language words for these realities, eternal, everlasting, forever, demonstrate how difficult it is for us to capture with our limited minds the reality that scripture points us to. We end up using metaphor and hyperbole and analogy to try to describe something that we really don't understand, really can't understand. What is eternity? Well, it lasts forever. And what is forever? Well, it's for as long as you can imagine, and then bigger than that, you know? Our limited human minds, bound by our limited bodies in this limited world, can't begin to comprehend what the eternal life that God offers us and promises to us means. And when we turn to Scripture, we find that the human writers through whom God speaks are similarly limited. And like us, they too turn to metaphor and analogy and hyperbole to describe the new creation that waits for us when our Lord returns. And I think that this passage from the closing chapters of the book of Isaiah is an appropriate one to lead us in reflections on this theme, even though it never says the words everlasting life. The opening verse of this passage really captured me as I was preparing for the sermon this evening because it's something that we tend not to think about very closely. Our NIV translation reads, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And at first glance, it might seem like this is God's declaration that the current world in which we live, the current cosmos, the current creation, the original creation, will be totally destroyed, and an entirely new creation will be made out of nothing. It's easy to read here that the new heavens and the new earth that God promises to make won't have any continuity with this fallen world, that it will be entirely new, that the current creation in which we live will be annihilated, that it will be completely destroyed, and that God will just start over, abandoning this failed, miserable, fallen world, which is so full of suffering and violence. And this 
actually is how many end-of-the-world myths go in other religions. There's even some Christian interpretations of the end of time that have God completely destroying this creation and making a totally different one. That God will finally realize that this world is just beyond saving and that nothing he can ever do will make it okay. And so God will gather up the souls of the faithful to himself and totally destroy the entire cosmos in his wrath and then create a new world with new bodies to put the souls of his faithful people in. Set them up for a life of everlasting bliss in a totally new world with totally new bodies with no continuity and no connection to this world whatsoever. But the verses that follow in this chapter in Isaiah make it clear that this isn't the case. Indeed, the whole counsel of Scripture promises a renewal or a transformation of the current world more than an annihilation of it. The destruction of the world at the end of time that we read about in the Scriptures does not end with an annihilation of the current cosmos. It ends with its transformation. And this is one place where the Greek and Hebrew languages have an advantage over English, because we don't really have any variation on our word new. When we say that something's new, we mean that it's not the old thing. It's a different thing. When we get a new car, we get rid of our old car. When we buy a new house, we get rid of our old house. The new car is not the old car, and the new house is not the old house. They're different. Totally different. But Greek and Hebrew both have a variety of words that we translate as new. And this is important for us to understand because the word that the Bible uses here in the Hebrew doesn't mean a new heaven, heavens and earth in the sense that it's a different heavens and earth. The word used here in the Hebrew and in similar passages in the New Testament really means renewed or transformed or fixed. It's new in quality, not in identity. It's the same world, the same cosmos, the same creation, transformed by the grace of God. And the verses that follow in this chapter in Isaiah make that clear. In the descriptions of the new heaven and new earth that follows, there are still cities, there are still people, and those people build homes and plant vineyards, bear children and raise them. People work, they labor, they live lives very much like the lives that they were living at the time that this prophecy was made. The prophet even talks about people still dying, although this language is meant to transform the way that we think about life and death. Because in Isaiah's time, the average lifespan was like 30 or 40 years. And so saying that a person will be considered young and 100 is like saying they're going to live forever. In this new heavens and new earth, there are animals and plants, there are cities and countries, there is work, there are children. The new heavens and the new earth that God promises through Isaiah is not a different heavens and earth. It is a transformed heavens and earth, a renewed cosmos. There's another thing that struck me about this first verse in the chapter. And it's something that we tend to skip over when we talk about the new creation. And it's that God promises to create a new heavens as well as a new earth. And one of the commentaries I read took a step back and said, whoa, wait a second. 
Why does God have to create a new heaven? I think it's easy for us to see and understand why the earth needs to be renewed, why the earth needs to be transformed. We see it every day in the news, we see it in our own lives. We see the suffering and the sadness and the fear and the violence that fills our fallen world. We see powers of injustice at work and systems of oppression that marginalize the poor and the vulnerable. We see forces of racism and ageism and sexism and ableism and discrimination all around us. We understand that the earth needs to be transformed, that it needs to be renewed. But why does God say he will create a new heavens? I thought heaven was already perfect. I thought heaven was already a place where those who died in Christ live with God and wait for the resurrection of the dead. Why does God promise that heaven will be transformed? But this requires us to reimagine heaven a little bit. We tend to think of heaven, as Pastor Carl often says, as clouds and halos and wings and Philadelphia cream cheese. A place that's far away, a place where God is. This immortal, perfect, changeless realm where angels and the souls of the saints worship God in perpetual bliss, far removed from the troubles of the earth. But scripture, and especially the books of Isaiah in the Old Testament and Revelation in the New Testament, present heaven and earth as two sides of the same coin. In Isaiah 13, Isaiah shows us that the physical battles on earth are mirrored by a spiritual battle in heaven. God's action on earth is mirrored by God's action in heaven. And when God pours out his wrath, both the heavens and the earth are shaken. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake in its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty and the day of his blazing anger. That's from Isaiah 13. The troubles of earth are mirrored in the troubles of heaven. The struggle of God's people on earth is mirrored by God's own struggle against evil in the heavens. Take these words from Isaiah 34. All the stars in the sky will be dissolved and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on Edom, a people I have totally destroyed. In the Bible, heaven and earth are not separate places. They are connected because there's only one creation, one cosmos, and the whole cosmos in its entirety has been stained by the curse of sin, stained with the blood of innocence, corrupted by the dark influences of violence and death. In Isaiah 51, we read, Lift up your eyes to the heavens, look at the earth beneath. The heavens vanish like smoke, the earth wears out like a garment, and its inhabitants die like flies. The truth of the matter is that there is no corner of creation that has not been corrupted by the influence of sin, no square inch of the cosmos that has not been affected by humanity's rebellion against God. Death and sin and violence and war are the name of the game in the heavens above and the earth below. 
And this plays out in our everyday experience, that there is a spiritual battle going on in the heavens that affects our struggles here on earth. One of the verses that really jumped out at me as I was preparing this sermon was verse 23 in chapter 65. They will not labor in, this is the promise, and I'm going to, so I'm going to say the promise, and then I'm going to go into what's behind the promise, and then we'll come back to the promise again. But verse 23, God promises that his people will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. They will not labor in vain. They will not bear children doomed to misfortune. These two great labors that Psalm 127 talks about, the labor of our hands and the labor of our womb, so to speak, are the two great labors that we busy ourselves with in this life here on earth. And all generations have seen the vanity of human labor without God. I was doing some reading this week about millennials and the millennial generation, which is an interesting thing to do because, like, even I, I am a millennial and I still think of millennials as kids. Uh, that's just the way we are, right? We're all just big kids. But, but I was doing a lot of reading about millennials and how millennial behavior has changed the economy and changed the housing market and changed the, edu the higher education system, all these different things. Um, and there were a bunch of themes that started coming out as I was reading all of these different articles. And a lot of these themes were that the millennial generation, because of the economic crisis, because of global terrorism, because of the housing market crash in the United States, all of these different factors, make this generation very afraid. And I think one of the greatest fears of the coming, not only the coming generation, but every generation, is that our work is all gonna be for nothing. And that our children will inherit a world that is worse than ours. The global economic recession, the housing crisis in the states, the threat of global terrorism and war, the ecological climate crisis, all of these things make the coming generation afraid. Afraid that all that we work for will come to nothing, afraid that our children will not be able to enjoy lives of security and peace. It makes people afraid. Afraid that their labor is in vain, afraid that their children are doomed to misfortune. One of the articles that I read over this past week was about the parenting habits of millennials, which I thought was fascinating because I don't think of us as old enough to be parents yet, but there's a lot of us who are. Um, this article was talking about how millennials, because most of us had to establish our financial independence while paying off crushing student debt and dealing with an artificially inflated and insecure housing market, that millennials are much better about saving for their children's future than previous generations were. In fact, there are more millennials with a, who have a college saving fund for their kids than who have a retirement account set up for themselves, which is kind of crazy in one sense because you can take out loans to pay for college, but you can't take out loans to pay for your retirement. That's just a side point. But I think that this reality points to the values that people develop when they go through different crises. 
And millennials, for the most part, stepped out of college with crippling debt and useless degrees into an unstable job market and an unstable housing market. And so their priority quickly became to establish a better footing for their children so that their kids wouldn't have to go through the same struggles that they did. Millennials don't really care that much about whether or not they have a nice retirement, or they don't care that much about their quality of life down the line. What they care about is that their children get a better head start in life than they did. And that's fascinating in its own right. But the thing that captured me about this article was, its, was the comments section. And you guys know how comment sections on the internet are. They're awful. And so this article had post after post lambasting the millennial generation for being selfish, for being irresponsible, for not contributing to the economy, not contributing to society, blah, 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 blah. But there was one comment that jumped out at me that stuck with me. And this is a quote. Shame on them. I think it's totally irresponsible to be bringing new children into this awful world. And that made me stop for a moment. Shame on them. I think it's totally irresponsible to be bringing new children into this awful world. Children doomed to misfortune, to use the words of our text. As many of you probably know, I have four brothers and sisters, and my two oldest sisters were adopted into my family when we lived in the Dominican Republic. And so I was the oldest child until I was seven, and now I'm the middle child. Figure that one out. My two older sisters are both dark-skinned, and they're both married, and have kids, and live in the States. And this past July, when I was blessed with a week of vacation, I went down to Texas to visit my oldest sister, who was seven months pregnant with her third child. And just a few weeks ago, she gave birth to her third son, Colton William Ramsey. While I was in Houston visiting my very pregnant, very beautiful sister, there were a few things that happened. First, Philando Castile and Alton Brown, two unarmed black men, were shot and killed by police officers in different states. Second, five white police officers were shot and killed by a sniper in Dallas, just a few hours away from where we were. And third, Donald Trump officially accepted his nomination as the presidential candidate for the Republican Party in the US election. My sister and I don't really talk politics. This is not something that she's very interested in. But one day, while we were driving to pick up the boys from swim lessons, she turned to me and said, my seven-month pregnant sister turns to me and says, 
Sometimes I wonder if I'm doing the right thing, bringing children into such a terrible world. Children doomed to misfortune, born into a world of violence, fear, hatred, and war. Sometimes the world seems too dark for God's promise of light to seem real. Sometimes war and violence seem so inevitable that God's promise of peace seems like a fantasy, like the wolf and the lamb feeding side by side, like the lion eating straw like an ox. Today marks 15 years to the day since New York City was darkened by clouds of fire and dust as the Twin Towers came crashing down to the ground. And in the darkness and gloom of such meaningless hatred and the violence that came after it, it can be hard to see the light that God promises. It can be hard to see how this world could ever be redeemed, how we could ever be transformed. And yet God promises through the prophet Isaiah, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. What God promises here through the prophet Isaiah is a world no longer characterized by fear, destruction, violence, and war. Instead, God promises a transformed creation characterized by security, prosperity, peace, and rest. A cosmos so transformed that even in the spiritual realm, there will be no more war and no more fighting, but peace. A world that is no longer characterized by the cycle of violence and death, but by long, abundant, even everlasting life. And this promise brings us great comfort in this life because we know that our labor is not in vain. 
We know already now, because of the promises of God, that our children are not doomed to misfortune. And this is amazing to me because it allows us even now to work as though our work contributes to the building of the kingdom of God because it does. Our work, our labor, whether that work is preaching the gospel in a foreign country or caring for the sick or preparing a coffee for someone on their morning commute, that work is blessed by God because God will take our work our labor, labor which can seem so pointless and so meaningless and empty, God takes our work and transforms it into something that is worthy of his glory, into something that builds his kingdom. God takes our work and transforms it into something worthy of his glory. God takes our world and transforms it into the place where his glory dwells. God takes our lives and transforms us into people who are worthy of citizenship in the kingdom of God. By God's grace, all of creation will be transformed and we will live forever in that transformed heavens and earth. And so we praise his name, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said. it can be hard to see the light. In a world full of violence and hatred, it can be hard to believe in love and peace. And yet this is what you promise us in your word. O Lord our God, we pray that you would strengthen us through these promises so that we may strive always for that blessed, blessed rest that you have prepared for us in Jesus Christ. Bless us in our labor, O Lord. Bless us with our children. Bless us in your holy church. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.